0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 10th, 2022, and as so often in this show, we seem to be dealing with perennial issues, issues that won't go away. We dealt with them. Uh last year and in an interesting conversation I had with the management theorist Nancy Giordano about whether companies can be both caring and profitable. She dealt with this in her new book, or was new at the time, leadering, the way visionary leaders play bigger. And she believed that visionary leaders could both lead companies in a caring and profitable way. This issue of care, social responsibility, and profitability corporate responsibility has come up recently. Uh, I wrote an essay on it um, for my LitHub piece, and it's come up again over the last couple of weeks. Howard Walk, a former uh, figure in the Clinton administration, believes that America's greatest strength is its entrepreneurial edge. And in his new book, uh, Launchpad Republic, He thinks that entrepreneurs in America and leaders, corporate leaders, have a responsibility to make America both stronger and more morally responsible. It was also a conversation I had earlier this week with the Fortune, longtime Fortune editor, very distinguished figure in business journalism, Alan Murray. He has a new book out, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business, bringing together, once again, responsibility and uh, soulfulness or uh, a profitability. Um, it's an and or or a both and issue. We dealt with it uh, last month in a conversation I had with the co-author of an interesting new book, Both and Thinking, um, Marianne Lewis. And I'm thrilled that we have her co-author, um, Wendy K. Smith on the show to talk more broadly about these issues. Wendy is talking to us from Philadelphia. Wendy, um, both and thinking, is that the key issue? Both and when it comes to both being morally responsible and responsible for profitability, can we have both? Can American corporate leaders um, cover both bases?
1: Andrew, thank you for having me on. The answer is yes. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, not only can we, the way in which corporations can be successful and the way in which we will be a sustainable world going forward depends on having both. I love that you started here because this is actually where I started with my own research, because when I was starting out, I had been in consulting. I was working with a number of consultants and the dominant perspective was we can't do both. And we shouldn't try Uh, that trying to do both was greenwashing or diminishing either side. And I am so thrilled from all the pieces that you've shared and the examples that we have that have shown that not only can we, we need to, and and we turn to a a number of examples in our book, which I'm happy to think about and unpack, but this is the core issue that got me started on both and thinking and that I continue to return to.
0: Wendy, what would you say to people on the left? We've had many of them on the show. Marco Dondi, for example, who believes that we need to outgrow capitalism. Or the environmental activist Jason Hickel, who believes that the planet needs saving from capitalism, not people. What would be your response to people like Hickel? Um, There are many, many serious, responsible and I think honest scholars how do we begin this conversation of explaining that we need and both thinking? It can't be either or.
1: I think the place to go is to realize that with either or thinking from the left or the right, we end up in these swings. We talk about them as vicious cycles, where we end up pulling so far to the extreme that we we, we talk about it as a wrecking ball pattern. We end up overemphasizing one piece, and because we've overemphasized it, we swing and kill all the good that goes along with the other. So in some ways, we have overemphasized profit in capitalism and not taken advantage of uh, or thought about the broader social mission. You know, corporations were started and organizations were started with co-ops or with organizations to really advance social good and create communities and create possibilities to raise up the social welfare of communities not to diminish it and we've gone so far to the extreme of profit i think that's why you're seeing such a deep and extreme defensiveness on the level of as you're talking about liberal thought that says we need to just kill capitalism but i think that is moving us in the opposite direction to do just as much harm in the opposite way. And so the question is, how can we value capitalism toward social good? And how can social good enable capitalism as a much more sustainable or as, as a question that invites us into a much more sustainable possibility?
0: Yeah, you, you wrote an interesting piece. or I saw an interview with you about how leaders make tough choices. You quote um, Jack w- Welch, the former CEO of uh, uh, GM, uh Uh, uh, GE, who claimed that great leaders are relentless and boring. He was anything but relentless and boring. He was um, probably not boring enough. He's the man who broke capitalism and he's given, and he's one of the figures who has given capitalism as a a bad name. So just as we need to move away, if you like, Wendy, from the, um, uh, the Marxist left with its unwillingness to accept that capitalism can work in any way. We also have to move away from the Jack Welch's and his style of leadership, don't we?
1: I think that's what we mean by both and thinking. And to be fair, this is not middle of the road compromise. This is valuing two opposite sides so that you can find ways in which they are interdependent and interwoven with each other. The example that we like to point to in the book is uh, Paul Pullman, who just wrote his book, Net Profits, which, yeah, there you go, uh, which we think is uh, a brilliant way of saying, look, it's not just about valuing the profit side, it's not just about valuing the people and passion and, you know, and, and planet side. And in fact, if you overemphasize each one, it's problematic. and even more so, that the value is in finding ways in which each side reinforces and enables one another. So what we find is that in his, and, and it's a brilliant case study of Unilever because he took over Unilever in 2008. He was at this the package good company headquartered in the Netherlands and in the United Kingdom. He was, as they will say, in a death spiral. It was the great uh, economic crisis. And he not only turned them around to be a market leader, he did it by double or he doubled profits by investing in social mission oriented, uh, sustainability oriented initiatives in diminishing their environmental footprint by half. That's the challenge and that's complex. I don't wanna say that's easy, but that, I think, is the uh, the silver bullet. That is the ideal. Uh,
0: one of uh, frequent guests on the show, an old friend of mine, Dov Seidman, uh, has also been on the show talking about how to make American capitalism more moral. He's yeah. close to Paul Polman. Um, Polman is, of course, Dutch, as you know. This and all thinking comes more naturally, perhaps, to Northern Europeans like the Dutch than it might to Americans. Is that fair, Wendy?
1: Well, uh, uh, Charles Hamden-Turner and Franz Trumplar who have some really good research on cultural norms, they they would not say that necessarily. I mean, it may, you know, but I, I don't know that the research bears that out. We've been asked if it comes easier to women than to men. Um, you know, sometimes people like to point to the east-west divide in part because if you look to the history of paradoxical thinking and both and thinking, and and both and thinking is, leans on this notion or you know not leans on i mean it's, it's it's core to this notion is this idea of paradox there's so many roots in eastern philosophical thought confucianism and buddhism and in fact one of the things that we find there is that while that is a core to national thought sometimes uh the problem is is that there's so much focus on integration across competing demands and looking for the interwovenness that there's not enough, in fo- the middle ground, there's not enough focus on how do we value each of these opposing ideas. And in that case, the more powerful poll wins out. And so this is what we were talking about before. You know, We could say we're doing the both and, we could say we're doing the integration, but profit is powerful and it's short-term oriented. And that's what drives us to really emphasize that poll over over people and environmental issues, which are much more long-term oriented. So mm. I guess, I, I guess I, I don't know that I don't know the research. I don't know that it bears out these differences. And I think the powerful difference uh, of East West, even there, uh, it turns out that in the West we emphasize distinction, in the East they emphasize integration. And you need both. You need to separate and connect, pull apart things and see where they're different and find ways in which they're interwoven to really get to the both-and, creative both-and solution.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. We did a show a couple of weeks ago uh, with a prominent uh, Sikh writer and thinker. And I I think he, I mean, I don't think he'd read your book or he didn't use language like um, both-and, but uh, it falls very much into your, I I think, that way of thinking, the offering of, of Sikh thought Uh, You mentioned women, of course, Wendy. You obviously are a woman yourself. Your co-author is a woman. Did a show with Christy Hunter-Arscott, a young uh, woman, uh, female uh, business writer. She has a new book out, Begin Boldly. She's quite a bold thinker and bold writer, bold figure. She says uh, the subtitle of the book is How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. Would it be fair to say that women perhaps struggle more to embrace risk, but understand uncertainty better than men? And again, I know that obviously not all men and all women fall into these camps.
1: Well, I love that question. I also lead a women's leadership initiative at University of Delaware. And so I think a lot about those questions. Um, I love that Betsy Myers was the foreword for her book. Um, I think, I don't
0: know if you've read the book, but I think you'd find it pretty interesting actually.
1: I am looking forward to that as a takeaway. Um, And uh, you know, I I think that, so again, we've been doing some research to understand if there are gender differences. I think the context is really different for women and for men in which they're taking risks and trying to be bold. The expectations are different. The uh, assumptions are different. And so that's where we get hung up is that there is a contextual difference Right. So if we talk about whether women can more inherently engage in both and or engage in risk taking, we also have to acknowledge that they have a different context. There was just a study that came out about the pay gap and the extent to which the pay gap starts with assumptions and biases as soon as women go into work. It's not just something that happens later. Um, So I think we have to start with that assumption. Uh, when it comes to women and their approaches, what we know is that women tend to be more integrative in their thinking, pulling people together and pulling together disparate positions. Uh, and the research question is, is outstanding at the moment. It's an outstanding question. And as a researcher, you know I, 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 I don't know that there is yet the research answer to whether women are bigger, paradoxical thinkers. We haven't found that yet in our research in terms of bringing together opposition and living in uncertainties but i think that the intuition makes sense and i and as i'm saying i think it makes sense that women are the intuition that women are less risk takers makes sense in part because women step into very different contexts where risk has a very different experience um and different consequences
0: i think you're right wendy um to, to make the environment so critical. We've done so many shows on it, this conflict between short and long-term thinking, between profit uh, to a company and cost to humanity. We did a show recently with David Victor, uh, co-author of a new book, Fixing the Climate Stretches for an Uncertain World. He, again, is cautiously optimistic about market fixes to the environment. What are you seeing on this front in terms of, both and thinking. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Victor's work, but I'm assuming you're seeing a lot of initiatives of of companies who are both trying to be profitable, but at the same time being environmentally responsible.
1: Yeah, here I want to give a shout out to my colleague and co-author and friend, Natalie Slawinski and Timo Bansell in Canada. They did some great research on the Canadian oil sands. And so, as you know, Canadian oil sands uh, have been called dirty oil and uh, deemed to be one of the greatest environmental detriments and one of the greatest detriments to our environment. And what they found was that companies that were willing to take the, to your point, the long-term perspective, were the ones that were able to embrace and embed. Uh, more significant environmental and sustainability-oriented initiatives and technologies <laughs> than those that were just focused on the short term. So I think that your insight uh, and David Victor's insight about the Not mine,
0: Wendy. It's the, I can't claim insight on any of this. Right. Well, but I think
1: that, that what you're pointing to, that this long-term perspective is really important because by looking, you know, we like to use this metaphor of standing on a boat and feeling the seasickness of the waves that toss you around. That's what it sometimes feels like when you are navigating competing demands and have to constantly be uh, living into that conflict and be open to the tensions and conflict. And environmental sustainability issues alongside profitability issues feel like that. And one of the ways to stabilize yourself in that moment is to look out to the horizon. Is to look out to the stability of the horizon, and so, uh, you know, I'll just say one other thing. When if we're talking about are there practices that enable us to live in the both and, one of those practices is having what Paul Pullman might call a higher purpose, uh, a longer term, bigger picture perspective that's motivating and integrates and brings together these competing demands. And so at Unilever, their higher purpose is making sustainable living, making everyday sustainable living, Um, and that sustainable living is an everyday activity. Uh, One of the reasons that's valuable is because that is a long-term perspective that brings together competing demands and invites us to live into those competing demands.
0: I'm not sure if you know this, uh, Wendy, I didn't actually, yesterday was uh, World Indigenous Day, and it was it's right. a UN festival. And I interviewed a woman called Kate Finn, who runs one of the big coalitions yeah. of Indigenous peoples, and 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 she's very suspicious and critical of initiatives on the environment, yeah. particularly given uh, electronic vehicles and the need for batteries to exploit native lands for the purposes of. Yeah. Um, Uh, building new technology she believes that indigenous communities have been through this before they've been ripped off by capitalism and it's going to happen again what would you say to for example um an indigenous community living on land which they've lived on for many centuries who are suspicious of this kind of both and thinking
1: yeah well I think they have every right to be suspicious. Again, contextually, the experience has not been a positive one in China. You know, and again, uh, one of the challenges is can we get beyond the greenwashing, the attempt at labeling something as environmentally valuable, but not the actual experience. One of the things I love about indigenous uh, culture and um, philosophy, and again, it's not my background, so I certainly am not gonna you know, say this right, but is the idea, the seven generations idea that we're making decisions for seven generations. This goes back to the idea of how do we take the long view so that we move ourselves out of just a short term perspective and think about the impact an implication for the long view. What I would say though to somebody like that is that, the again, the value, what we are trying to argue around both and thinking, and you're speaking to really deep issues, environmental issues, uh, issues of capitalism, but we can also talk about some of the deeper issues of political polarization that are happening, that, that what we are arguing is that we need these diverse voices to all be raised up to a level of respect in order to get to a better solution. So we need the voices of indigenous populations at the table and not to feel marginalized when we talk about environmental solutions to raise the issues that are concerning. And we need the voices of companies that are growing and developing technology at the table in conversation with one another and that's the part that's not happening in an effective way to truly bring out more sustainable solutions
0: it's interesting uh wendy you bring up politics we did a show with nancy jacobson the ceo and founder of no labels who's very much in favor of a third party candidate very hostile to the two Uh, political parties at the moment. And I wonder if Joe Biden has been reading your book. Um, (laughs) There's a nice piece by my old friend Ed Luce in the FT this morning, The Unexpected Triumph of Joe Biden. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if if Nancy Jacobson's a big fan of Biden, but he seems to be (laughs) in your camp in terms of somehow navigating between different communities and not just being... In the middle ground of, you know, Anne Richards' famous remark about Texas, everything in the middle of the road in in Texas turns out to be roadkill. So what do you make of two questions? Apologize for the rather long winded nature of this. What do you make of initiatives like No Labels that tried to create third party initiatives? And then do you think Biden is in a way, in his own odd way, uh, navigating the and or both and world?
1: Yeah, Andrew, I love that question. Well, first of all, I'm at the University of Delaware, and it is Biden country at the University of Delaware. So uh, he is he is the hometown, uh, you know, favorite. You
0: better be careful what you say, Wendy. You better Kind be <laughs> to the old man.
1: We um in the in the front of the book we quote both Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, and his political opponent John McCain both of whom call for both and as a means of overcoming the tribalism of politics. Here's what's so hard and uh, I think it was Ezra Klein on his show and his work on um, why we're polarized, where he points out that for politicians, winning is about emphasizing their one side. Um, leading or you know the work of politics is about working across, across sides, working across the aisle. And unfortunately, we're so in the world right now of needing to win that we are not enabling our politicians to, or we, we, we that our politicians are not effectively being able to work across sides. I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. I think it takes increasing amounts of courage because what we are seeing in politics right now is people who are stepping outside of parties. Would,
0: uh, would Kristen Cinema or Joe Manchin, uh, you, know, you don't hear a lot of good things about them, but actually no. um, Nancy Jacobson was very complimentary about both Manchin, particularly Manchin and Cinema. Do you think they are examples?
1: Yeah, of, I mean, if Nancy yes, was. Uh,
0: <laughs> both and-
1: yeah, go ahead, sorry.
0: Sorry, uh, uh, Mansion and Cinema, are they models for your both and thinking?
1: I mean, a little bit. I mean, in some ways, they become the swing voter who's stuck in the middle. So I don't think, again, that the context of our political conversations is really enabling us get to deeper both and thinking. And actually, one of the solutions that I think, and that Marianne and I think, is that we need to start these conversations before the political spheres, the political norms, where we could have some both and thinking happening in the conversations around the kitchen tables and the town halls. I am a student of and huge fan of Parker Palmer's Healing the Heart of Democracy, or going back even further, uh, I love the work of a turn-of-the-century thinker, Mary Parker Follett, uh, who was among the Harvard uh, community in the early 1900s. Talking about how we need to bring in disparate voices into the town halls, if we're not having conversations one on one in the in our families because we're afraid to be talking about different political positions or with our friends or with our colleagues, or we no longer have the typical town hall where these conversations happen, that, then how are we going to you know, if, if, how are we going to expect our politicians to be doing that when they get to Washington and the stakes are so much higher? So Nancy, I think, is on the right track, and I think that we need to be inviting ourselves to be having those conversations with one another. We just published a piece that came out today in Newsweek. Today is August 10th uh, in, uh, in Newsweek, in which we invite people to think about what it looks like to have a conversation with friends and family that have a different political point of view. And that's hard because many of us, me included, have very strong political opinions about issues, and we feel like if we invite in people who have a different view than us on the abortion debate, on gun control, on climate, that what we're doing is we are um, assuming that their position is right, ours must be wrong, or that if if ours is right, theirs must be wrong. And the invitation in both and thinking across political sides is what does it look like to assume that I have a point of view somebody else has a different point of view we both could be coming from a place where we're both right in fact we both might be coming from a place of values that are actually quite similar but we have to be able to listen to one another and I want to say one one important thing about this because importantly opening up and listening to somebody with a different point of view does not mean you agree with them it means that you respect them enough and acknowledge that they have different, you know, and acknowledge that their political views are valid, even if you don't agree to honor and listen to them and engage with them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show with a young uh, activist, uh, journalist activist, Monica Guzman, uh, who's involved with the Better Angels group, who's very much on that page. What about, though, Wendy, problems that are impossible? To solve. Um, I read you You were doing a, an interview about how you had a, a tipping point moment when you were starting your PhD. You were a management consultant and you were talking about the concept of social responsibility and you were thinking about Ben and Jerry's and their concept of social responsibility. Ben and Jerry's is very much in the news now. There's a battle between them and their parent company as there's a fight about israel and whether or not um ben and jerry should be sold in israel israeli students accuse ben and jerry of occupying tribal land in vermont in response to some of ben and jerry's concern about israel and palestine um i don't want to get into that particular case but it just that's a particular example the The Arab-Israeli conflict, the Arab-Palestine, the the Israeli-Palestinian Jewish-Palestinian conflict in Israel, uh, that seems insoluble. I mean, you can both you can give both sides your book, both and thinking, and it's not going to change anyone's mind on anything. Yeah. Are there some examples like that where both and thinking simply doesn't work?
1: Well, I don't know if that's the example. In fact, here I give a shout out to a couple of people. Um, my my friend and colleague Jen Goldman Wetzler, who studies intractable conflicts and studied the Israeli Palestinian issue, uh, and really looked at what it takes to push the rock forward on peace processes. And it does feel like pushing a boulder up a hill. And um, you know, my PhD was from Harvard and I was a student of, in so many ways, intellectually, the work by Herb Keller, who's, who, what he would do vary from an activist point of view and looking at uh, the, the psychology of peace bring together high potentials from Palestinian, le- you know, high potential leaders, so not those that are in power at the moment, but those that will be in power in the next 10 years, and Israeli leaders, and this is years and years ago to sit and have conversations and get to know one another before they're sitting on opposite sides of a peace process and discussion table. And I think this is where the media um, uh, minimizes or you know, in uh, the media is a fantastic institution and the sound bites don't capture the complexity of the issues. And so again, this is where I think taking these issues back in, into conversation, there's a great organization called Seeds of Peace and they bring together youth, kids, Palestinian Israelis. You know, I don't wanna idealize the issue because it's a painful and poignant and difficult issue. And I would argue that the starting point for pushing this boulder up the hill, and again, I don't think it's about having solved the issue because I don't know if we will ever solve it. We're talking thousands of years. I think it's about always solving, coming to a better point by being, by pushing ourselves to have conversations with people that look and feel and have very different needs and goals than us, so this is not about having a conversation at the level of do we put more, uh, you know, more uh, Israeli settlements in, you know, in territories that were supposed to belong to Palestinians, or about whether you know we're going to push all the Israelis into the sea. This is about having conversations on the one-on-one on a human level.
0: Yeah, I'm not convinced. Maybe we need, just simply need to send Paul Polman to the Middle East and force these sides <laughs> together. Um, what about the idea of this sort of overcoming our our mentality, our, our behavior? I did a show this morning with Nick Kostov, the co-author of a new book on Carlos Ghosn, the fallen Nissan leader. The book is called Boundless. Uh, Elon Musk is very much in the news today. Men like Gone and Musk, they're highly egotistic, to be polite. What would you say about leaders like that? You know, for all the talk of female leaders and Pullman-style leaders, capitalism is still dominated by men like Gone and Musk.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, that is the right observation, you know, um, this is one of the places where I think we need better balance of, you know, one of the both ends that we talk about is does change happen because you have individuals coming together that believe in a point of view, or does change happen because you shift the system, the policies and the practices. And there's a huge debate about where change comes from. And we see it every time there's a social movement that emerges. So in the feminists and in the women's uh, movement in the last 10 years, we've seen a big debate between as women need to lean in, which is about how they behave and, or and it's framed as an or, or we need to change the system so that women have better conditions for the system. And we saw this debate happen really profoundly in the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for racial equity. Does change happen because we help people change their implicit biases and their mindsets, and or we help people of color be able to find new opportunities and ways of engaging? Or does change happen because we need deep systemic change? So this is one of those either ors that I think is not an either or, it's a both and. And when we talk about the example that you just gave or what strikes me as an example that you just gave of leaders with so much power, one of the reasons that we end up in these situations where there is a problematic situation is because power overtakes on one side and we haven't restricted that power. I have great colleagues, Marco Berti in, um, in Australia and Ace Simpson, who recently moved to the UK, who talk about the problematic part of power when navigating paradox. And when we're in a situation with so much power that it emphasizes one side, in this case, emphasizing capitalism and narcissism, you know, then, then we can't really live in the both and. And the question is, what are the systemic changes that would have to happen to restrict that level of power? And Andrew, I think that's a really profound question. It goes back to this question of reimagining capitalism. I'll just say one thing that may or may not be provocative, but I think is important, which is that when you talk about organizations, whether it's a social enterprise or an entrepreneurship, or you know, a, a profit or entrepreneurship, or uh, whether it's a nonprofit, the big word we talk about today is scale. For everything, to be, for everything to be funded or to be supported, it's got to be able to grow big. And part, I think, of the reason that we are in this problem of capitalistic uh, overgrowth, if you will, is because scale does not always mean impact. And in fact, scale means that we have consolidated power into a small group of people where we do not have, we have diminished what... I and Marianne would say is more of an ideal of having a diverse amount of voices, even if it's messy, and and especially knowing it's messy, coming together to share perspectives. And I think that one of the, you know, to go right back to your very beginning questions, which I think were so provocative, one of the diminishing parts of being able to, you know, around capitalism, one of the diminishing factors, I think, of being able to Enable capitalism to run in a way that enables and serves society rather than takes from society is a scale issue, is a power consolidation issue.
0: It's an interesting issue. I'm talking to the venture capitalist Brad Fell tomorrow. Maybe I'll bring this up. Um
1: yeah, Bradley a Yeah, you certainly, <laughs> yeah, you certainly
0: tell the story, Wendy, very well. You're very good at articulating it. Your co-authored book with um uh, with uh, Marianne Lewis, both and uh, thinking, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest uh, problems is just. Uh, uh, end on a a writing note. You did an ah. interview with Project Scribe about believing in your own story. Uh, recommending, uh, I, I guess, belief in your own story for writers. You believe in your own story. <laughs> what would you say to writers about really? not so much embracing creative tensions, but embracing your own story and telling it coherently.
1: Yeah, you know, Andrew, first of all, thank you for doing all of this homework and finding these pieces. I'll give a shout out to Charlotte Cloutier who runs that website and has done interviews with uh, academics to explore how we write and how we think. And one of the things that I write about in that piece is the blood, sweat, and tears of trying to come up with the ideas clarify them, specify them, it's, it's an emotional process. And I think it's emotional in, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, you're taking a bunch of messiness of the world and trying to whittle it down into something profound uh, and then being able to demonstrate it in its messiness. So you're dealing with this, kind of this tension between simplicity and complexity and, and that. And I think the other one, and I am certainly experiencing this as our book, you know, just had its pub date, birth date yesterday and is out in the world, is uh, we really at this point love these ideas because we really believe in them and, we, and as a result we feel very vulnerable as a result of them because we are uh, putting them out for a whole community of people to explore and maybe not love. And that's okay. I think that's where we need to be listening to that feedback. Uh, the feedback so far has been great, but we're you know open to and listening to the feedback broadly. But it is an emotional process of feeling the vulnerability of sharing things that you love.
0: Well, your new book Um, out, as you said yesterday, Both I'm Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems by Wendy Smith and your co-author Marianne Lewis. Uh, it's right out. Congratulations on that. Um, uh, Wendy, anything else to suggest? You've cited a lot of academic books in this. One or two other books. Do you ever read anything outside management? Novel. Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, of historical fiction. Uh, that's where I, I get some energy. I, um, you know, I, I, I think um, a couple of books have been really on the top of my list lately. I have been reading um, and really valuing uh, Christian Bush's book the serendipity mindset, uh, because I do think that part of what we talk about in both and thinking is that luck uh, comes to the prepared mind, as Pastor said, and he talks about how do you set yourself up for serendipity. So I want to value that. I've also uh, been going back to my colleague Dolly Chug's book, The Person You Mean to Be, as a way of asking ourselves how we can live in the diversity of our world, be open to it, which again, I think is really critical to being able to value different perspectives to come together to something more sustainable. Um, and then I'll I'll go back to, you know, I started this world again. I, I had said I went to grad school thinking I was gonna study Uh, ben and jerry's and social responsibility and sustainability and exactly what and the time was not right for that and i started by studying innovation and the tension between today and tomorrow and how you navigate that i studied that at ibm with my colleagues uh, and now authors uh mike tushman charles o'reilly and andy bins of the book corporate explorer and so i've been thinking a lot about their work and what it means to innovate in companies that are so dominant in trying to do the existing world or feeling pressure from the existing world. So I'll give all of those a shout out at the moment.